Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about common interests, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Ellie and Nika and a special guest Katya to talk about different hunting strategies that animals use and maybe consider how this knowledge could be useful to us. So to start off with, Ellie, I know you're a zoologist so I guess you know a lot about this. Please enlighten me. (laughs) I mean, I might be bigging it up too much. I definitely have an interest in this. I find this whole thing fascinating. As a zoologist, I have come across like quite a few examples that we'll chat about. And I just think it's so incredible. People don't often realise how the animals have evolved the way they have and how their hunting strategies are so linked with the prey and then the environment that they live in. So, yeah, we're going to discuss some examples that I personally find very interesting and hopefully you guys will too. Cool. Everything's linked. That's the first thing I'm learning. Catcher, I think you've got a similar-ish story to Ellie's. You've also got a zoology background. I know you produce your own podcast, so please tell us more about that and how it fits in with your zoology. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. First of all, this is very exciting. Ellie and I know each other. We did our master's together in wildlife filmmaking. Um, and obviously it's a very, very difficult field to get into. So we just thought we'll just make our own podcast. So I have, I host a podcast with our other friend who we did our master's with, Josh. And it's called Drunk on Porpoise. And essentially, it's supposed to be a very relaxed, upbeat conversation about wildlife and science topics. I love it. I love the name. Are you intentionally drunk for every single recording? Yes. And I've been more (laughs) drunk for some and less drunk for others. But I definitely always have a beer in hand. (laughs) I like it. I guess that could lead to some really interesting um, varied conversations. Yeah. And also not so many good conversations. (laughs) (laughs) you'd be surprised how often I lose track of my train of thought that's part of the joy happens to us all the time Anika you're definitely not a zoologist so what's your interest in animal hunting strategies so I'm coming at this in two angles so one is that a few months ago a fox family moved into my garden and they keep leaving eggshells and I keep seeing them with chicken carcasses in the mouth so I want to know what's going on with the foxes How do they get their food? Are they hunting in bins? Are they actually going and finding chickens somewhere and killing them? Does someone have live chickens that they're they're attacking? So I want to know more about the foxes. That's my one area of interest. But then also as an engineer, I'm really keen on what we can learn from the different techniques that animals use for for hunting because I'm really into biomimicry. I think it's really cool how we can learn from nature and apply it to our lives. So I'd be keen to learn more about that as well. Oh, I wonder where you were when you were doing our biomimicry episode. Maybe we should revisit some of those in a future material science-y episode. Yeah, foxes in your garden. You live in Manchester, right? Is it? It's quite a built-up area there. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, you know, how at the beginning of COVID, like all these goats were taking over city centres. I think it's <laughs> continued, but now it's with, with foxes. They're fearless and not nocturnal, apparently. I always thought foxes were nocturnal, but no, we have staring competitions quite regularly me and the foxes. Wow and I've definitely seen them wandering around Manchester occasionally when I used to live there and you could hear them in the park at night doing things. <laughs> it can be quite scary the, the noises they make if they're fighting they can be quite high pitched. Yeah definitely. They also have a, a like a mating scream as well so that's why people often get worried because they like fully scream and it sounds like a human yeah. so often people are like oh my goodness what's that and yeah it's the foxes. So they scream when they're getting it on? Yeah. That doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> Oh, but have you looked around your neighbourhood, Anika, to see if anyone does have chickens? Because some of my neighbours did in Manchester. No, I don't think anyone, not that I've heard or seen, I don't think they have chickens. Maybe someone was feeding them because I don't know where they're finding that much chicken every day. 
Yeah, I can answer that. A lot of people feed them. Why do they do that? The foxes are not living in their garden. I know. A lot of people will feed them raw egg, like eggs, just to eat on, or chicken. If you ever want to go into an internet hole, mm-hmm. fox groups, like I love fox no groups on Facebook, it gets crazy. You'll hear discussions about like what to feed the foxes and like regular foxes that they come. People create entire narratives around these these foxes That's that live in their crazy. Yeah. And they make a mess in my garden because they poo everywhere. They leave the eggshells everywhere. And then it's just really disturbing to see them just leave the garden. And then two minutes later, walk back with like a giant chicken carcass in their mouth. Wow. Oh, I um, was taking the dog for a walk the other day and it picked up part of a corpse. Oh. I don't know what the animal was originally. It was quite well decayed, but I had to fish out the dog's mouth. And it was like a bit of spine oh, with some oh, ribs oh, still attached gross. to it, some decaying skin with some fur still attached. And then I had to like hook what I think was a leg out of the dog's mouth. I had a dog growing up that always would like roll in carcass. Is that a thing? Oh. It's a nature they, just, they find something dead and they love to roll in it. And it's just an awful smell. It's weird, isn't it? What's gross to us is something that they clearly like. Yeah. What can we do? We have foxes around here. So I live in a really rural area, but I have seen one a few years ago now chasing a rabbit across a science park on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and the rabbit kind of ran past me and dived into the bushes and the fox kind of went, oh no, there's a human. It's something bigger than me and sort of deviated and turned away. So I saved that rabbit's life. <laughs> <laughs> or you cost that fox its dinner. Maybe. Yeah. I'll have to go round to Anika's and get a chicken. Yeah, exactly. It got the train to Manchester. But that is pretty much the most I've seen about foxes and their hunting strategies. Don't go near the human. The Manchester foxes seem to have it easy, I guess. Yeah, yeah, they're chilling. They're living a good life, eating a lot of food. More chicken than I eat, I can say that for sure. They are not starving. No. No. I think the thing with foxes is they're such like generalists. They're pretty happy-go-lucky. Like they will hunt if they need to. But if you've got someone that's willing to feed them a whole chicken carcass, like why make the effort, save the energy and take your lunch for free? That's what I would do. Yeah. yeah. If someone brought me Deliveroo every day, I'm not going to cook dinner, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're always going to do the laziest option. I mean, call it lazy, call it be conservative, whatever you want. I'd do that. Energy saving. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Energy saving. Yeah, it's tough in the natural world, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) I suppose we do have a few more examples from our, can I call you guys tame zoologists? (laughs) (laughs) Channel Top Gear here. I'll I'll happily take that title on. I don't know if I can commit to it, but sure thing. And have you guys got any examples of some less urban examples of hunting? I probably have the most unurban, rural, not quite the right word, wild a hunting strategy that I found. So this is quite a recent paper and I love this so much. So basically elephant seals hunt in the sea, as you might imagine, hunt fish. But what people don't realise is that in the deep dark ocean, it is very deep and very dark. So they can't see. They're not using eyesight necessarily to hunt. And so if they're not doing that, what are they doing? And what scientists have discovered, and this perhaps is the best technique I've ever come across, is they put teeny tiny little infrared cameras on the cheeks of seals a adorable b fascinating and they set them off and seals can't see in infrared so these were infrared cameras because obviously it's dark so there's no point having a normal light spectrum and they found that the whiskers of seals have a specific motion and they call it whisking in the paper (laughs) i'm doing hand movements (laughs) obviously guys can't see but they have like a specific like imagine like a figure of eight sort of thing and they whisk their whiskers in this motion and that helps them detect changes 
in the water pressure and the water movement. And then they know where the fish are because the fish are causing the changes, which is like mind blowing. Wow. And also it's the same sort of thing that a land using whisker specialist, aka a rat, would also do. It's the same principle of whisking round and round. <laughs> Could they hunt this way? And do you think like these animals involved this, will they eventually lose the use of eyes? Do they even need eyes? Like it's so incredible to me. And there was also videos of it that you should definitely watch because it's just so cute to see the little cheek of the seal whisking round and round. Oh, just to kill its, uh, to kill its prey. It's very cute though. It's very cute. And also super effective as well. Like if they didn't have this, some of the fish are bioluminescent. So like, obviously that helps, but it's not hundred percent reliable. And obviously like not all the fish that they eat might be bioluminescent or you might on one specific day not see any. So if you want to eat regularly, which they often do, then you've got to whisk, whisk the whiskers and feel the vibrations in the water. Like not even in the air. So cool. And I guess that's, there must be other currents and things affecting their whisker movement. So the seal has to somehow filter all of that out to concentrate on motion from something that's a fish. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how they would necessarily do that, but I think perhaps if there's more than one seal, like, can you tell that that is another seal and not, you know, a shark mm. or like a, something you don't want to eat versus your fish? Like, do they have specific ways of doing it? I don't know, but I just think it's awesome. And you can read the paper and discover more because it's really very cool. You said this was a, a very recent discovery this year. Yeah, this year. The paper came out 13th of June. Ah. So not even a month old. It's really recent. But probably encapsulates like several years worth of research. Yeah, definitely. Well, they said also that they had 9.4 hours of video data from like the five steels that they studied. And I can just imagine like these poor researchers like sat there like watching nine hours of seals whisking. Like eventually, like it's cool, but at some point you think not that cool. Maybe I've had enough now. I'm picturing like tiny little GoPro, like just attached to like little whiskers. That's exactly what I'm picturing. I mean, I know like it's a bit more complex than that, but I'm just like little tiny GoPros, just like (laughs) (laughs) they called it newly developed small cheek mounted video logger with infrared light. Patchy. Short form for that, or <laughs> like teeny tiny GoPro works well, I think, basically. Yeah. Yes. But who decided that oh, seal whiskers? We need to find out more about that. Let's develop a tiny camera and put it on their faces just for this one purpose. Right. I mean, but who knows what else they'll discover? Like maybe this will trigger like a cascade of other learning. Maybe they just thought, how do they hunt? Because it's really dark. How do they possibly see? Or is their eyesight really good? But no, it's all in the whiskers. Hmm. Oh, there you go. They said something in the abstract. In brackets, it said rodents or rats, but they called it something else. It was something very bizarre. So this is the thing that they do. So the seals do it, but also like well-studied terrestrial whisker specialists also do it, (laughs) which is meaning rodents. I just think that is so funny. I love it. I love that my pet rat is a whisker specialist. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing the same thing as the deep diving seals. Yeah, Incredible. Well, apparently rats do have really bad eyesight. Worse than mine. And my eyesight's pretty bad. I have to wear glasses for anything that's more than about 20 centimetres in front of my face. So, you know, I can't tell if someone's walking down the street, whether they're walking towards me or away from me, whether I know them or not, because I can't see that well. (laughs) So my, my rat's eyesight is worse than mine, but they can definitely jump onto things with very good precision. Like tiny little fancy things that are much taller than them and grab on and climb up and wander around and you wouldn't know that their eyesight's that bad so i guess that must have something to do with their whiskers maybe sensing the air currents over that fence because their whiskers do move around a lot 
Yeah, it's got to be, I'm sure they're to do with like depth perception as well, like not meaning underwater depth, but like the way you observe where things are in relation to yourself. So if you have good whiskers, it helps you realise that what's in front of you is only a metre away or is a jumpable distance. Mm. Whereas if you didn't have that, like obviously humans don't have that. And some people, including myself, have terrible depth perception and are really clumsy. And I often, like in a new place, I will walk into windowsills and door frames and they hit my arms and showers because I have no clue how close it is to me. And I just fall over all the time. Are they related to moustaches in any way? (laughs) (laughs) Should we ask a load of moustache owners whether they have better depth perception? Including myself, I'm a proud moustache. <laughs> How do you rate your depth perception? Uh, not great, so maybe, <laughs> maybe they're not. <laughs> so it does nothing for us. Yeah. I find it in the car as well, like parallel parking is hard, full stop, but I genuinely have no clue how close I am to stuff. Like if I didn't have wing mirrors, I would hit many, many things, I think. But no one ever does, don't they? When you get into a new car, you always have to figure out where your reference points are. And you're always kind of guessing until you either get it right or get it wrong. Yeah. I wonder if we can adapt the seal whisker technique to like something like a car or maybe a submarine instead of a parking sensor where it beeps when you're closest to it. It would be like the same system of like the whiskers being like, oh no, vibrations are too strong. Stop, don't reverse anymore. Submarine's a really cool one. I didn't even think of that. That would be really incredible technology. I mean, obviously maybe not like to that extent, but that kind of that kind of idea. But it's like sonar, right? I think so. The whales obviously do that and like like dolphins and that sort of species would do that. The seals are not playing that game. They're all about the whiskers. Which obviously then whales don't have, so it makes sense. Yeah. Isn't it funny that people realised sooner that certain sea animals use um, sound waves to detect things, but the whiskers was more of a mystery until now? Yeah. Maybe it's potentially because of that military aspect. Maybe we like heard their sound waves on our equipment first, but you wouldn't obviously hear. There's no like radiation coming off a whisker mm. in the same way. No, something more difficult to discern going on. I wonder if there's any use here for drone technology. Um, Anika, you're asking about engineering applications. Mm. I suspect that trying to fly a drone outside is really difficult. It needs to be quite a calm day usually, doesn't it? Yeah. What if your drone had whiskers on that could sense what the air currents were at different locations as it's flying and adapt yeah. accordingly? Maybe it's a kind of technology that could be applied to self-driving cars, for example. I think that would be a really cool application. Yeah, that's a good point, because there were some self-driving cars that crashed because they thought a white van was a cloud or something like that, because it looked similar to the the visual sensing technology. But obviously, if you've got whiskers, you don't have that problem with detecting different colours. Mm. Yeah. God, can you imagine that, having to report that back? All right, back to the drawing board. <laughs> we can't do anything with white cars. <laughs> back to the blueprint. How ironic that it was a white van. They always get a lot of stick for not being able to see. If you ever tried driving a white van or any van, it's not that easy. <laughs> it's understandable that you've got this massive blind spot. You just have to go for it. But if you've got whiskers, maybe. I'm, I'm totally adding, yeah, I'm, I'm adding to the list of uh, animal traits that I want, Ellie. I don't just want <laughs> a lamprey mouth. Tail, wasn't it? A tail was the last one. <laughs> yeah, I, def- I still want the tail. I still want the tail. Yeah. To help with the clumsiness, to help with the depth perception, maybe I should go with the whiskers instead. It's a big satellite dish. <laughs> this is where it's headed. This is my ultimate goal. Just become a rat. I'll just become a rat. Or a seal. <laughs> I guess there are probably a few more things we can learn from the animal world as well. Have you got another example that you want to share, Ellie or Katja? I have one. I mean, we talked a bit about mimicry earlier today when we were discussing it. 
tree ocelots mimicking the sounds of adolescent monkeys in order to lure adult monkeys into striking range. There's a lot of evidence that they do this. They have never observed it to actually be successful in terms of actually capturing a monkey for food, Um, but it does lure them to the point where they're in the vicinity where they can strike. They've just never seen it actually be used successfully. But it's one of the first instances of a feline using mimicry to hunt, which I think is incredibly fascinating because they call it psychological cunning, which is scary enough to begin with because we see it a lot in lots of animals, but we've never seen it before. Or this is the first instance seeing it in a feline. Ah, so these are the small spotty cats that they live in the jungle, right? Yeah. They've got massive eyes. There's a picture on the National Geographic website. They look really cute. I don't know if they are. They're absolutely beautiful, I think. Yeah, I agree. You just think, is this psychological cunning? Like, it's so clever to think if I make a call of a baby monkey, the mummy monkeys are going to be like, oh, better check that out, make sure it's okay. And then, boom, you can catch it. That thought process is so intelligent of a creature to be like, this is the way I'm going to catch my tea today. Yeah, that is true. But I wonder if, because they said they'd never been successful in catching prey using this technique. I wonder if the prey is like, that doesn't sound quite right. It might be a baby, it might not. I don't know, I'll be a bit wary here. Yeah, from what I read, it was that they can get it in the vicinity. They understand that it's like an adolescent monkey, but then they can't capitalize on it. So they can get them close enough where the monkeys are like, okay, what's going on? But then the monkey realizes just a bit too like soon for the ocelot to actually capture them. I mean, also what we've observed, right? I mean, we can only be in the jungle so much observing this. So it could happen when when we're not around. Um, But yeah, no, I agree. Maybe there is something slightly off. Yeah, it's avenues to explore. See, you've now got me wondering, Katja, with the, the premise for your, your own podcast, Drunk on Porpoise, if there are a bunch of ocelots sitting around a bit drunk going, you know that noise you made? That sounds a bit like a baby monkey. Can you do that again? Yeah. That's amazing. It's just them at the pub, <laughs> like when we're all down at the pub. And we're like, do that impression. Do your best accent. <laughs> That's just them. They're just, you know, screwing about. <laughs> you know what? Would not put it past them. I really wouldn't, right? There must be some fruit in the jungle that kind of falls to the floor and rots and uh, turns into alcohol. Uh, there is. Starts to ferment. Yep. I've done an episode on it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, if I'm getting drunk, the animal kingdom's getting drunk. <laughs> <laughs> this is totally feasible and that they could be drunken ocelots sitting around going, that sounds just like a monkey. Do that again. <laughs> and then all these monkeys going, what the heck? Is that Dave? Is that Steve? What's he doing? <laughs> I love that idea. I know we're not really supposed to anthropomorphize animals, but I love that idea. <laughs> One of those ones, I'm not entirely sure how we could use that in engineering. I don't know if you can think of anything, Anika. What, getting drunk in the jungle? (laughs) (laughs) Sounding like something else to attract something else that an engineer would find useful. That took a really weird turn as I was saying that. (laughs) I suppose it's sort of similar to like, I was going to say magnets in just that you can use something, one thing to attract another thing, like magnetic forces. But I can't think of how making a sound that sounds like another sound would be useful like in a modern engineering setting. But if anyone else can, tweet us because we would love to know. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking mimicry. Can we can we use mimicry as kind of a, a jumping off point for anything? Yeah, honestly, I can't think of an application for the sound thing specifically, like mimicking someone's sound within engineering. But I guess there must be ways that you have to let sensors know that something's there or, you know, thing, things like that. That's the only kind of application I can. I was just thinking about, have you guys seen Man versus Bee? Oh, Mr. Bean's new show. Yeah. yeah on netflix so they have a coded um alarm that keeps going off and it's voice activated oh that's 
to the woman that owns the property and she's like a very posh person and so he mimics her voice to turn the alarm off so it's like the same kind of principle that's a good one well done (laughs) so we can use it to break into people's houses yeah Yeah. i was just gonna say nefarious purposes is the only thing i could come up with (laughs) instead of face recognition you can have voice recognition i guess yeah for certain things that's a really good one actually i gotta say i think there are a few birds around here that are really good at mimicking human-made sounds like car alarms and mobile phones there is i think it's probably a starling but i think someone's been watching too much star wars because it sounds exactly like r2d2 it does it every single day and it always makes me laugh amazing yeah starlings are notoriously really noisy and good mimics yeah what about parrots is there mimicking of humans is that a hunting thing i think it's just an intelligence thing more than anything it's just being able to like copy but also they sort of know like you can teach a parrot this is a triangle this is a rectangle so they would learn as well like this is a thing rather than just mimicking like a a noise that they hear that they have the like vocal capabilities to be like i can make a noise like a car alarm and see what that does so like not like dogs apparently they don't understand what you're saying but how you're saying it is that correct so parrots are kind of more advanced in that they also understand what you're saying yeah Yeah. now you tell a dog to sit you could tell a dog do anything the way that you say it the tone is more necessarily important than that yeah than the thing like we used to do it with my dog all the time like he was called blue but we called him like biscuit or like silly yeah. one or whatever. Like, is it all like, come here, little one, blah, blah, blah. It's that sort of thing that you're doing rather than the, the actual name. Very cool. Shall we move on? Should we go for another watery one? Yeah. Cool. And then. Um... <laughs> so I see, I see the word sharks on my screen. Who was it that found this one? That was me. This one was incredibly fascinating to me, especially since I'm a huge shark lover and I did not know this was a thing. And so I thought, oh, this must be a really recent study. It's from 2015. So I was a little annoyed I didn't know it, but essentially white sharks use the positioning of the sun to hunt. This was done by Charlie Huveniers at Flinders University in Australia. And he basically conducted this study where they found that in the morning, white sharks were more likely to come from the east to attack their prey, and then in the evening, more likely to come from the west. So they were kind of hidden in the shadow and the sun's glare illuminated their prey better. But also they think the glare of, on the water stopped the prey from seeing the shark approaching before it was too late. So they did a study of like 44 white sharks and they observed a thousand attacks over the course of a period of time. Um, and they found that you know they would, they would use the positioning of the sun to determine what angle they came from to attack their prey. I wonder if they're like doing this consciously. Yes. On overcast days, they didn't seem to have any set direction they came from. But when the sun was shining, it was very much clear that they would come from one way. So obviously we don't know if it's like this is an an instinct thing or an adaptability thing. But yeah, no, I think they do really know that the sun's this way. So I'll come with it this way. Oh, that is psychologically sinister, isn't it? I just have the Jaws theme tune playing in my head now, like... (laughs) They've thought about it. That's what blows my mind with all of these creatures. Like, yeah. there's the intelligence behind the technique to be like, I need to eat. I have to feed. I'm not just going willy nilly. I'm thinking, what's my best chance of success here? It's so cool. What's my strategy, essentially? Yeah. Which is incredible. Yeah. It's something you don't tend to think about in um, most animals, that they've, they've actually taken the time to think, what would be the best thing to do here? They can't just go for it. That's not going to work. What else can I do? Yeah. Because they can't afford it, right? I mean, we have that luxury. They don't. We can go to Tesco's. Exactly. <laughs> a shark could go to Tesco if it really wanted to. <laughs> really, really wanted to. Just a load of elephant seals, like, in the fish aisle. <laughs> could be bothered to dive today, guys. 
Now that's a movie I want to see. <laughs> Maybe that's where Anika's foxes are getting the chickens and the eggs from. <laughs> Honestly, I think they are. The volume that they go through is oh, just ridiculous. That's funny. Yeah, I was reading, um, I think it's a slightly older study about a shark that had migrated from, I think it was South Africa to Australia and back in about three months. They think she was navigating using the sun because she was quite close to the surface of the water and she went in a dead straight line. So she must have also known roughly what time of day it was as well, because the sun would be moving around as she was travelling. Yeah. I think that's so impressive. Yeah. Do you think we could really confuse the sharks if we took like these Australian ones and <laughs> moved them to the UK and split them across the hemispheres? And then they'd be like, wait, hang on, what time is it? What am I doing? Wait, which way should I be going? Where's the sun coming from? <laughs> or there's no sun at all. <laughs> it's raining a lot up here. <laughs> Are we in Manchester? It's grey here. We can't hunt. Always partly cloudy. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I do wonder if they do it more. If you had the same shark species, if you studied it in, you know, like Florida versus Australia, do they do it more because it's more sunny in Australia versus like, does the climate affect it much? Or is it just a, a shark thing that they know that if it is sunny? We do have sharks in the UK, don't we? Not necessarily great whites, but there are other. Do we? Yeah, apparently. Whoa. I was reading about this just before the show. So I think Ellie and Katja can tell us more. We get quite a few. There's like basking sharks that come up sometimes, which are awesome. Are they the vegetarian ones? Yeah, the vegetarian ones. <laughs> they don't, well, they don't eat um, like in the same way that a great white did. But I'm sure there are smaller, like, are there smaller, like little dog sharks and that sort of thing around the coast as well yeah i think if you want to qualify a shark species but not in the sense where we think about you know the whites and the bulls and the tiger sharks but we do have shark species of some kind i guess i'm not likely to see them swimming around the coastline near me yeah you might see a basking shark if you're very lucky how do they bask do they just sort of come near the surface or is it like seals basking on rocks i don't actually know why they call basking shark i've never thought about it but i think they just i think because they're so they're very big and quite wide so maybe it looks like they're basking but i i don't know i just know that they have enormous mouths mouths, don't they yeah i'll try and keep an eye out so i've gone out in the harbour quite a lot and i have very occasionally seen a dolphin coming out the water doing the dolphiny thing and i've seen porpoise in the harbour once i think it was a, a I assume it was a mother and a small child, but I mean, this is like three sightings of sea creatures in over 10 years. I'm going to have to spend more time on the harbour if I want to see a shark, I think. But seals, I've seen seals. Oh yeah, there's loads of seals around the UK. Not elephant seals, but we have two species, common and grey. Or oh, if I get that wrong, I'm cross, but I think that's what we have. Yeah, they're, they're awesome. I've seen them, I think, in Wales and Scotland. Yeah, there's loads in Wales, like round um, Tembe and all those islands, Stomer Island. You can see dolphins around Skoma as well. I saw them near, um, it's closed now, but it was a nuclear power station, Wilfer. So that's the link between engineering and... (laughs) (laughs) They're around Formby as well, which is not that far from you. You can see seals in Formby. Yeah. Were the sharks at Wilfer attracted by um, like warm water that was being exhausted into the sea? Or they just just happened to be there? I guess, yeah, I guess so. It must have been that there's warm water nearby but I just yeah we saw them um yeah the reason I asked that was because I can't remember where it was but it was a jellyfish blocking water intake or outtake I assume it was outtake if it was meant to be warm water from a power station somewhere else so it was a huge problem oh wow the jellyfish really liked it but it wasn't causing them any harm they just really wanted to be there because it was a favorable environment for them that's crazy jellyfish near power station water can they give you electric shocks 
jellyfish are there electric jellyfish as well or have I just seen this in a movie and just made it in my mind that it's real I don't think so okay I mean they're like stingy but I wouldn't think they're not electric like an electric maybe I'm confusing electric eels with yeah that's where I went as well so maybe I think which is in the name I wouldn't want to be either to be honest jellyfish freak me out as animals very creepy I don't like it when they're swimming around me I've seen them washing up on the beach quite a lot I don't mind it then when they're not moving it's one of those things where I like want there to be a fence in the way or like a window like I want to observe them, but I don't want them to be within touching distance of them. I've always assumed that their stinger, is it an electric current or is it more a chemical sting? I'm going to go chemicals. I'm going to go toxins that are poisonous to humans. No, because you can you can neutralise it, right? Don't we on it. That's not going to help. Everyone says that's what you meant to do. No, that's a rumour. That's fake news. That's Friends' fault, that is, from that episode when we went to the beach. That's where I learnt it from. It's not a thing. <laughs> Don't do that. But if you're in a foreign country, potentially go to the lifeguard station because they often have anecdotes and stuff of like common jellyfish that are in the area. Oh, wow. So if you get stung, go there first before you go to a med centre. So the chemistry depends on the jellyfish. Different species have different chemistries of stinger. Ah, I'm learning so much from this and we're getting very (laughs) distracted. I guess it's kind of a hunting strategy though. Yeah. Jellyfish don't really hunt because they don't have a brain. So they're just wafting around in the current and they if they you know, hit something, be it person or prey, they will eat it. But they're not really hunting because they just are there. I think I'd like to be reborn as a jellyfish. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that before. <laughs> like, yeah, they don't have a brain and they just float around. That's my ideal life. No stress, no worries. Just float in the ocean. Just existing in the water column. And no one wants to come near me because I have a stinger or whatever it is that I have. I mean, the turtles will try to eat you, but you could probably, probably survive long enough. Is what it is. <laughs> I can't really think of where to go from there into herons. <laughs> Let's just talk about herons. Was this another one from you, Katja, about how herons attract their prey? Yeah. So this is another interesting one because, I mean, the shark one, that's the first instance of like a non-human animal using the positioning of the sun to help them hunt. But obviously this doesn't really count as that. But dark herons will like cover with their wings an area of water. And essentially the shade attracts the fish, which brings them closer to them and then they grab them. And I'm not sure why the shade attracts fish, but we've seen, I've seen it quite a bit. You see the videos of it. I think herons, they look like villains. Yeah. Like movie villains. But also they're the ones that have learned how to bait fish as well. So they're like, you know how people feed fish bread? They'll get the bread and they'll use it themselves no. to like lure the fish closer. You can see videos of it on YouTube and stuff. They're like, if I feed the fish, the fish will come and then I can eat the fish. That's a secondary train of thought, right? Yeah. That's so fascinating. It's like, if I get this bread, I will use said bread in the water to attract a fish because the fish will come for the bread and then I will eat the fish. That's insane levels of thinking, right? Surely the heron must have observed fish eating the bread beforehand and people giving the bread to the fish. This is a whole chain of events going on. It's like learned the like consequence of this, you know, the bread being in the water. And then it's like, well, if a human can feed the fish bread, then I can feed the fish bread and then eat the fish. Or even sometimes they use smaller fish. So you get to yep. catch a small fish <laughs> first. And then the big fish come, and then you can eat a big fish. That's wild. That's some planning. There's planning involved in that. Yeah, they're scheming, aren't they? <laughs> that, they put more effort and planning into their dinner than I do. Yeah, it sounds like a movie heist. It does. It's Ocean's Eleven. Uh, Ocean's <laughs> Eleven, heron edition. <laughs> I'd watch that. Just the uh, seals at the end driving the getaway submarine. <laughs> 
all right, someone get their name on this right now before someone steals it. It's gold. <laughs> uh, I have possibly a really stupid question. Am I right in thinking that herons nest in trees? Yes. Good. In a heronry, ah, which is a pleasing word. That makes sense. I just assumed because they were quite large that they'd live in nests probably near water, kind of like ducks, you know, they nest on the ground pretty much. But no, I saw them landing in trees and thought, hang on, the, the top of that tree does not look strong enough to support what looks like quite a large bird. Yeah, and also they nest like uh, groups of herons nest together, I think, is a thing. Egrets definitely do it. So like multiple large birds in one tree, which is quite incredible, really. I just got images of like a really windy day and all these big birds going all different directions. Yeah, and also the babies are really ugly. Really? as well like they just they did not look cute are they the ultimate supervillains in that case <laughs> i don't know like sometimes you think you look at stuff and you're like it's ugly but it's still cool but i mean heron babies are just scruffy until they get their feathers through oh they are cool and very cunning i mean even the just like a standard heron heron hunting technique like where you just stand really still and wait for something to forget you're there it's like crocodiles in the um in africa like we'll just lie really still under the water and wait and the water will be so still like no ripples whatsoever and then the poor gazelle or zebra comes for a drink and ooh, plastic ambush yeah get it when you least expect it there's so many great like david attenborough moments of crocodiles getting animals from under the water so what happens if a crocodile and a heron are both fishing in the same pond and both have the same idea who eats who if they're both being really still are they both sitting there going you move first no you move first i reckon the crocodile would eat the heron first can they eat them unlikely but also i feel like crocodiles would just go for it wouldn't they just grab on and hope i i think the heron would just sneak in i think it'd be just the crocodile wouldn't even notice it it would be just sat there in the corner and then grab the fish and leg it and the herring gradually folds its wings out into this uh, umbrella type shape <laughs> over the crocodile's face the crocodile's like oh it's a bit cloudy today <laughs> <laughs> am i in manchester what a change <laughs> a shark appears just like falling <laughs> <laughs> oh we brought a full circle well done i love when that happens this is like uh, one of those scenes is it one of the lion king films where they're all coming down to the water hole and because there isn't a lot of water they're all kind of like allowing each other to drink i'm like what that probably wouldn't happen in real life that's just a cartoon i mean you do get multiple species at a water hole but it's probably a bit more boisterous yeah some species will go for it like other species are not so keen but it's not yeah it's not the idyllic Disney imaginings, unfortunately. No. But are there any engineering applications of this heron's shading technique that you can think of, Anika? You know those things you can get in front of your windows, like if you're a greengrocer, but people have them in their yeah. house. Awning! That's what the word I was thinking of. It just reminds me of an awning. So like if you, you need it like to protect your produce if you're you know in a market or something like that i feel a retractable awning could be useful um and it could be good for like temperature temperature control i think that's true having some something to introduce shade uh, especially in warmer climates could be really useful but that's adjustable yeah see i guess i'm thinking of like new engineering advances from these um things we've observed from the natural world but it's more like stuff we've probably been doing for quite a while that the animals just also happen to do but we're only observing it for the first time in the last few years really also the thing is as well you have to not be observed yourself like if you want to watch these animals do these things you have to be so minimally invasive that the animal behaves normally so that's potentially why we didn't know about the seals for so long because we didn't have the technology to put a camera on their cheeks and like the ocelots weren't successful when they were observed, but they might have been successful many previous times or since. 
Yeah. So like as the researcher, you can't go in and then disturb the animal doing its thing in the first place, because then obviously you won't you won't learn what they're up to. My takeaway from this is there are so many things that we don't know about the world that we're in. And there are all of these things that these animals are doing and we don't get to know about it because, as you said, you're disrupting what the animal would normally do. It's a bit um, Schrodinger's cat-like. You have to observe it and then you affect the outcome. Yeah. And there's probably so much more we could learn from them. We talked about some of this in the material science episode that was things that are inspired by nature. So there's probably an awful lot more out there that we can learn from animals. But also in the same way, the animals have learned from us as well. So like the heron using the bread or using, you know, berries that fell on the water is a similar thing. But like Anika's foxes have learned that people will feed them or have learned that if they climb round the bins at the back of Tesco, they can get a free meal. You know, you follow the good smells and see what happens. Or, you know, your neighbour once had 10 chickens and now only has one because they've learned that's where the chickens are and they're quite tasty. (laughs) So everything is connected, I guess. I feel like I've just unintentionally summed up the episode. So I guess that's a good place to leave it. So if you've enjoyed this episode, you can find us on Twitter to carry on the conversation. Please let us know if you think of any applications or any other interesting animal hunting techniques we've not talked about. And there are other ways to get in contact with us and you can look in our bio to find out what they are. We will see you next time and thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.